But you probably know one of the most basic laws of nature is expressed with the phrase, what goes up must come down. It's a simple way to get across the law of gravity, where a force being exerted by our planet will eventually win over anything influenced by it. So if I crush a baseball off the tip of a bat, which I maybe did one time in Little League, and the ball ascends into the air, eventually gravity will slow that ascent and the ball comes down. Or if I shoot a basketball towards a hoop, that ball will come down unless it's a bad shot and it gets stuck in the rafters or behind the backboard for you contrarians. Now this basic law of nature, physics 101 if you will, is sometimes applied more broadly. We might use it to describe something that will play out with our mood or our mindset. If you're feeling up, if you're feeling good, eventually you're going to feel down. Or if you have something good happen, maybe you win again. Maybe you experience a positive moment in a relationship. Maybe you find a really great deal and you are proud of a purchase. Eventually, you're going to come down. You'll lose again. You'll experience a letdown in a relationship. Your really good purchase, especially if it's a used car, it will get broken. And when you see the estimate of how much it's going to cost to fix it, you will feel down. We might call this basic law of life, life lessons, what, what goes up, oh, excuse me, we might call this basic law of life, life lessons 101. What goes up must come down. So my name is Paul, and I serve as one of the pastors here. For those expecting to see our lead pastor, Chris Hemmelman, sometime this summer, he and his wife, Mindy, are actually on a sabbatical, getting some much-needed time to rest and reconnect with the Lord. In the meantime, at First City Church, we're reflecting on a bit of Christianity 101, an ancient statement of faith professed by Christians throughout the globe and throughout the centuries called the Apostles' Creed. And one reason we're doing this is to highlight how First City Church does not exist on an island. We are part of a much broader family consisting of Christians across the globe and throughout, throughout the centuries who have professed their faith using the same language. So if you were with us last week, you know we were in a section of the creed focusing on Jesus, considering who is he? Where did he come from? And we made the point that the creed, by nature of the flow, it communicates it is critical to view what Jesus did in light of who he is. What he did matters because he is fully God and because he is fully man. This week we're moving from the person of Christ to the works of Christ. What did he do? How does what he did matter to us? If you have any familiarity with the Christian faith, what I'm going to say this morning will be something you're acquainted with. It's Christianity 101. The section we're exploring communicates he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Was, he was crucified, died, and was buried, and descended to the dead. Well, depending on how you read that phrase, maybe that's not Christianity 101. We'll get to that. And then on the third day, he rose from the dead. So if physics 101 or life 
Lessons 101 is what goes up must come down. The creed is saying what goes down or who goes down has come up. In light of that, the title of the sermon this morning is The Fall and Rise of Christ. I know many are into a, a, a narrative, a story that's in a different order. We're into rise and fall stories right now, right now, where individuals or organizations experience a rapid rise and then encounter a dramatic descent. There's a movie coming out this weekend detailing the rise and fall of Elvis. Many of us pay attention to the rise and fall of celebrities, people like Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. One of the most listened to podcasts on Apple this past year, not only with Christians, was about the fall of a church called the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Rather than a rapid rise and then dramatic descent, the creed is outlining a different type of story. The creed points to the fall of Christ and then his rapid rise. Now, why does this matter to you and I? Because rather than what goes up must come down, the gospel introduces a new principle that governs and guides our life. What goes down must come up. Our big idea this morning for Christianity 101, what goes down must come up. If you have a Bible or Bible app, open it up to the passage of Scripture read earlier, Acts chapter 13. We're looking specifically at verses 26 through 31. As we explore the text and the creed, we're going to consider the fall of Christ, the depths to which he descended. And then we're going to reflect on his rise, the heights to which he ascended, and eventually consider implications for you and I. Let's start with verse 26 in Acts chapter 13. Brothers and sisters, children of Abraham's race, and those among you who fear God, it is to us that the word of this salvation has been sent. So the Apostle Paul is sharing something he calls the word of salvation. These are words intended to communicate a message of deliverance and liberation. He's doing this to a diverse group of people, men and women. People who align with the Christian faith, and it seems people who would not yet necessarily call themselves Christians, although they may be interested in Christianity. That group is culturally diverse because it includes Jews and pagans, those who were not Jewish, but who were interested in the God of the Israelites. He calls them, you who fear God. In the verses prior to what we read, Paul provided a brief summary of Israelite history. How God made his people prosper during the time they lived in the land of Egypt, how he put up with their stubborn rebellion after they were set free from slavery, and how he provided land and leaders for them. Eventually, there was one leader who came, a man named Jesus, carrying the title Savior. He was to rescue and redeem his people. But rather than rescue and redeem, what God's people did to him would certainly be described as a fall. Let's look at this in Acts. Since the residents of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize him or the sayings of the prophets that are read every Sabbath, they have fulfilled their words by condemning him. 
Though they found no grounds for the death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him killed. If you're familiar with the story, you know that Jesus had gathered a significant number of followers. People had been healed by him. People declared him to be king of the Jews. People were looking to him to liberate his people from their Roman oppressors. He had entered the the city of Jerusalem a hero. Individuals waved palm branches and welcomed him. He rode on the back of a donkey, symbolizing he was a king bringing peace. But then, the fall. He was rejected. He was condemned to death. Even though he was innocent, even though there were no grounds for him to be declared guilty, the Israelites asked the local government official, Pilate, to kill him. How far did Jesus descend? The the Apostle Paul is communicating, along with language in the Creed, the fall of Christ was a dramatic fall into physical suffering and death. Before he was crucified, he was beaten. He was stripped naked. He was scourged. He had to carry a cross. But because he had been beaten so much, he couldn't do it. Jesus was put to death on a cross. There were nails driven through his hands and his feet. A person died on the cross suffocating drowning in their own blood. It was an excruciating form of physical death. But the fall of Christ was more than a physical death. It was a fall intended to humiliate and disgrace. Listen to historian Tom Holland describe the act of crucifixion. Crucifixion was a fate that was visited on those who were were regarded by the Romans as the lowest of the low. You didn't just suffer physical agony. It wasn't just that it was protracted, lasting perhaps hours or days. It's also the fact that it was public. Your Your sufferings in a society where to be humiliated, to be shamed, was the absolute worst of fates. Your sufferings were visible to everyone. People could gather and point and laugh as birds flocked around your head to peck out your eyes. As you grasped and heaved, pulling yourself up and down, feeling the nail scrape against the bone, and you did so As you did so, your agony would be a cause of mockery. Crucifixion was a fate worse than death. It wasn't just that Jesus descended to death. He died the death of someone declared guilty, someone who deserved to be punished. And he wasn't just dealt physical blows. He was humiliated. He was mocked. When he couldn't carry his cross any further, he had to have a bystander carry it for him because his best friends had abandoned him. They had rejected him and betrayed him. The crowds 
that had sung his praises when he entered Jerusalem now were filled with crowds chanting, Crucify him! Crucify him! Crucify him! How far did Jesus descend? Jesus was disgraced and humiliated. He was betrayed and abandoned. It was the story of a fall filled with suffering and scandal. And then he descended even further. Look at verse 29. When they had carried out all that had been written about him, they took him down from the tree and put him in a tomb. Jesus descended down into the ground. He went into the grave. This fall didn't stop with an act of execution. This fall resulted in Jesus being defeated by the biggest enemy of all, death. God's Son, the Messiah, the one set apart to establish God's eternal reign, died. Man's consequence for choosing to reject God's rule and reign in the Garden of Eden was now being experienced by the one innocent man. His fall included a descent into death. Which brings us to the line in the Creed that is perhaps the most controversial. Because if you're like me, when you first learned the Apostles' Creed, you learned it using the language, he descended into hell. That would be controversial, because if you read the Bible, the Bible doesn't say Jesus went to hell. Is the Creed saying something beyond what Scripture teaches? No. This phrase is, however, expressing the depths to which Christ descended. The question is, where did that descent take him? So some of you know, I think many of you know, all of you may know, sometimes there is more than one meaning to a word. For example, if I use the word mine, am I talking about something I'm responsible for? or a place underground where minerals are extracted. And sometimes, when there is more than one meaning to a word, one of those meanings becomes less familiar. If I were to say a young man and a young woman were flirting in our church, you would think they were giving one another glances. They, they were smiling at one another, they were being playful with one another. They were trying to get one another's attention, but not trying to be too direct or too obvious. Someone in the past, if they were to hear a young man and young woman in our church were flirting, they would think they were in conflict with one another. It used to mean to sneer or to give someone a sharp blow. We reduce the word flirt to the common meaning today. The same is true of the word hell. So there, there are two Greek words that have been translated hell. This may be new for some of you. The, the way we think of hell is the Greek word Gehenna. That's a place that's in the future after the final judgment where people are punished for their sin. When you hear the word hell, that is what you reduce the meaning of the word to. But the Greek word Hades and the Hebrew word Sheol, those have also been translated to mean hell. Hades and Sheol 
they're the same thing, refer to the place that souls dwell after they die before the coming of Christ. Listen to Psalm 88. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. This Sheol describes the dwelling place of dead souls. This is the consequence of sin, but it is not the place of punishment. So when the creed says Jesus descended into hell, it's saying his fall included a descent to where the dead dwell. He went down to death. Jesus did not go to a place of torment. It was more of a pit he descended to. What the creed is saying, part of Jesus identifying with sinners like you and I, he entered into what sinners experienced. So Jesus descended to the dwelling place of the dead. This is why we use the language descended to the dead rather than descended to hell. For us to descend to hell with how language has changed, that could be confusing or misleading. But this really wasn't controversial. This really wasn't confusing until recently. This is not how early Christians understood it to be. Hell could refer to the dwelling place of the dead, or it could refer to eternal conscious torment. The creed was referring to the dwelling place of the dead. Of course, the reality is death could not hold him. Jesus broke the power of Sheol. In doing so, he changed the place where his people dwell when they die. Let's return to Acts 13, verses 30 and 31, and consider the rise of Christ. But God raised him from the dead, and he appeared for many days to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Okay, to help communicate the significance of the, the rise of Christ, I want to use an illustration or an image that some of you may be familiar with. The picture on the screen uh, should be, yep, there it is, something called a J-curve. It, it spotlights, excuse me, it spotlights the descent of someone or something hitting rock bottom and then ascending or rising up. And that ascent then exceeds the previous status quo, something far more significant than what was previously experienced. A J-curve can be used in things like economic theory, but Christian author Paul Miller has written about how the J-curve illustrates realities encountered in the Christian life. In this case, it helps us understand the significance of the resurrection. See, Jesus experienced a fall. He was living his earthly life, and then he descended. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified. He died, and he was buried. And his descent didn't stop there. He went into the grave. He associated with those who are dead, but the grave could not hold him. Jesus did not stay in the grave. A radical rise happened. 
Women who loved him and cared for him showed up at the tomb on the third day, and the tomb was empty. His body was gone. Jesus was victorious over death. Who has gone down has come up. But more than return to the previous status quo, his rise established something far more significant and much more glorious than his earthly life. There was a physical ascent into the heavens that our friend Justin preached on a couple weeks ago. Jesus was validated to be the Son of God in power. His, his ascent resulted in him physically moving to a place of greater honor and status, sitting at the right hand of God. But his rise out of the grave also meant death was no longer the enemy that could not or had not been defeated. Someone had gone down into the grave and had defeated the ultimate enemy. Satan no longer had power over sinners like you and I. God's promises of death being defeated had prevailed. The resurrection of Christ was a sign that one age had ended and a new age had begun. The age of death was over. The ultimate sacrifice for sin had been made. Sacrifice for sin was no longer necessary. The rise of Christ established that Jesus was far more than a hero who lived the ideal life. He is more than an example to teach us how to live. He is Savior. He defeated Satan. He was not just a human offspring of Eve that lived a good life. He was the offspring of Eve, promised way back in Genesis that crushed the head of Satan and liberated his people. And this means the fall and rise of Christ isn't just about the fall and rise of an individual person named Jesus. Instead, it was the scandalous fall of a heavenly Lord resulting in the radical rise of his rebellious people. People like you and I benefit from this fall and rise. Scripture declares in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, though he was rich for your sake, he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he, became, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The fall and rise of Christ wasn't just about the fall and rise of an individual named Jesus. It saved sinners like you and I. It introduced a new governing principle. Christianity 101, what goes down must come up. Now there are a number of implications of this J-curve illustration for how we live today. For example, when we die, we will rise. When we are converted to Christianity, we die to selfish desires. And we live to the glory of something much greater. We live to the glory of Christ. Miller spends, Paul Miller spends about 300 pages unpacking implications for the Christian in his book, J-Curve, Dying and Rising with Jesus in Everyday Life. But for now, Let's turn our attention from the works of Christ and talk about you and I. 
Every single one of us has experienced some sort of fall. Moments we have descended into a pit. Sometimes these are situations we sinned. Moments we look back on with deep regret. Loose lips leading to lies or gossip or inflicting pain on others. Uncontrolled anger. A lack of self-restraint. Engaging in some sort of sexual sin. Neglect in failing to love and care for friends or family or brothers and sisters in Christ. Sometimes these are moments of deep disappointment where you are confronted with failures and displeasure. Failure as a parent. Failure as a friend. Failure in the workplace. Failure in ministry. Displeasure with disease. Displeasure with disability. Displeasure with an aging body. Displeasure with others. And sometimes these are moments, the falls we experience were things done to us. Physical harm. Words that caused pain. Actions that did not deliver blows to the body, but delivered hurt to the heart. All of those moments are powerful. When we reflect on them, they have a tendency to produce shame and sorrow and sadness. Even when there is distance between the time of today and the time they occurred, those moments have power to determine our mood and our mindset. What are those powerful moments for you? What falls in your life are most prone to define your life, to determine your mood and your mindset? Every single one of us has experienced some sort of fall. Some of us try to deny that and live in a bit of a false reality. Some of us try to stuff those moments away. Some of us embrace the power of positive thinking. The good news of the gospel does not deny the power of those moments. But in Christ, those are not the moments that ultimately define us. In being united with Christ, we have aligned our lives with his fall and his rise. Here's the way the Apostle Paul says it in the sixth chapter of Romans. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to, to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The J-curve, the fall and rise of Christ, what goes down has come up. It describes your life in Christ. This is why when you are baptized as a Christian, we say you have died with Christ and you have been raised to new life with him. When you become a Christian, when you trusted in Christ, his works are the most important works in your life. His death is your death. His rise to new life is your rise to new life. What's gone down has come up. 
When you understand Christ died for you, when you understand the significance of that work, it will be what determines and defines your mood and your mindset. You will see a Savior who was crushed for his rebellious people. He took on the punishment for that rebellion. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He took on the consequences of what they did when they rejected him. But it wasn't just what they did. He took on their suffering and their sorrow too. Listen to the words of Isaiah. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people have turned, people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own ways, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Isaiah is looking forward to the fall and rise of Christ. He's seeing the J-curve. And he recognizes that when Christ ascended, he took our rebellion and our iniquities, ways we have rejected God's rule and his reign, and he also bore our sicknesses. He carried our pains. It wasn't just for our sin he descended. He descended for our suffering too. When we place our faith in Christ, we are trusting in his works and ways. We surrender our sin and our suffering and our sadness. That can feel like death. But on the other side, there is a rise. There is much hope. There is much strength. There is much victory. Where our sin and suffering defined our mood and mindset before, now the work of Christ defines our mood and our mindset. So I got to tell you, there is an environment on this planet where what goes down will come up. Or at least you will come up. When you find yourself in the water, when your lungs are filled with air and you are properly oriented to the surface of the water, the buoyancy of the water, it pushes you up. In the water, when you go down, you will go up, usually. So I was with our students on uh, the impact trip this last week, and on the last day, we headed to the water park at Mahoney. There's a wave pool there, there's water slides and the typical diving board and the tube slide that shoots down quickly into the water. This is what you pay me the big bucks for, to take our youth to Mahoney State Park. Well, a couple students encouraged me to do uh, the tube slides that shoots quickly down into the water. It's deep water, I think it's like 12 feet deep. Um, I think some of you know I'm not a good swimmer. Um, I, I took swimming classes as an adult. I maybe shouldn't go into deep water. But I thought, in the water, what goes down, it comes up. As long as I keep my body straight, I'll be fine. So as I came out of the tube slide, my legs hit the water. They stayed up. But 
my body and head quickly sank. As I hit the bottom of that curve, I was upside down. I was disoriented. I'm in the water. I'm frantically trying to get reoriented. I, I panicked. I started flailing my arms, actually pushing against the force that, that, that was pushing me up. By the time I got to the surface of the water, the, the lifeguard was forward on her toes, re ready to jump in to rescue me, asking if I was okay. I was. I was. Christianity 101. Do you believe Jesus died for your sins? Do you believe Jesus rose in victory from the dead? Many of us would affirm this doctrine. But we affirm this doctrine when we become a Christian or to become a Christian. As we live day to day, we become disoriented. And some of us get stuck at the bottom of the curve. Our faults our failures, our flaws, they determine our mood and our mindset. We focus on our flawed faith rather than the finished works of Christ. We focus on our failures rather than the victory of Christ. We focus on how we have been sinned against. We lose sight of the actions that most define us. Rather than his work being the most powerful events in our life, something else is. When we say, I believe in Jesus Christ who suffered, crucified, died and was buried and descended to the dead, but then on the third day rose again, we are saying it is not anything, not anything I have done or anything others that have done to me that is the most powerful event in my life. And instead, it is something Christ has done. It is something he has done for us. The creed reorients us to this reality. Listen to Pur Puritan pastor Robert Murray McShane. Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God, bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. The good news of the gospel declares the powerful, the, the power of difficult moments that define our mood and mindset, moments that lead us to despair, moments that lead us to experience agony, Christ looked at those moments, and rather than look down on us, he took them on himself. Your fall from whatever state you were experiencing is not the fall that defines your life. Your, your fall from wherever you at, however, however far you descended to, it's not the thing that determines your future. The fall of Christ does. And the fall of Christ is something that frees you and liberates you. 
the life of a Christian is knowing the love of the Savior, the scandalous suffering of a heavenly Lord, his fall that led to the radical rise of his rebellious people. Let's pray.